Have you ever been on the receiving end of just some unexpected kindness? Maybe your child just decides to do the dishes for you without even asking, or somebody packs a lunch for you or washes your car, and you just show up and there it's all done for you. You weren't expecting it. You know, that's one of the things that we tried to do this last week through Central Cares. We just show up randomly throughout our community and we paid for people's laundry. We painted, we delivered groceries, we made thank you bags, we wrote notes, we picked up trash. We did all kinds of things just to try to tell our city, hey, we, we care. We, we love our city because God loves our city. You know, that's the thing we sometimes miss, isn't it? that God loves our city. Oh, it's easy to see that somebody cares when they show up with a bag of groceries. Oh, we know they care, they love. But it's easy to miss the many ways that God just continually shows up and demonstrates his loving kindness toward us. And so we miss it. You know, we're not the only ones. We'll see that this morning as we kind of dive into the second half of the book of Hosea. If you weren't with us last week, just to kind of bring you up to speed, God used the life of this prophet to really grab the attention of the northern kingdom Israel. And what an attention grabber it was. Hosea, he was told to go and to marry this unfaithful woman, Gomer. And because of her unfaithfulness, as a result of her unfaithfulness, well, there were children of unfaithfulness that were added to the family. Hosea eventually, he even had to go and to buy his wife back off of the auction block. And he did all of this to show us so that his life would demonstrate the type of love that God has for his people, the northern kingdom Israel. And so now that God has and Hosea has the attention of the northern kingdom Israel, his message begins to take shape. And that message will extend from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 14. And the way Hosea kind of lays it out is he says, hey, in chapters 4 through 7, Israel, here's what you're guilty of. Here's all the sins that you've committed. Here's the depth of your unfaithfulness, of your depravity. And then in chapters 5 through 8, Hosea will say, and here's what God's going to do. Here's, here's the consequences of your sin. Here's the judgment that will now be leveled upon you. But then in chapters 11 through 14, God says, but there's hope. If you'll repent, if you'll come back, if you'll draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I will restore you. This is what I want to do. I don't want to give up on you. It's an amazing book. And so this morning, we don't really have time to go through verse by verse, chapters four, all the way through 14. No, instead, we're going to zero in on chapter 11. Now that you have that flyover, chapter 11 basically brings all those three pieces together. You have the unfaithfulness, the judgment, and the restoration all coming together in chapter 11. I want you to see it. Let's go ahead and read Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. The prophet writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. 
They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma or treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like the birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes." declares the Lord. The prophet begins chapter 11 by telling Israel that God is reminiscing about the past. He's reminded of when Israel was just a child growing up in Egypt and how God loved that child, Israel. Remember, that's where Israel was born. After all, this large family of Jacob blossomed into a mighty nation in Egypt. It was a nation seen as a threat. So Israel was forced into captivity. And then God used Moses to call his people Israel out of Egypt because God loved Israel. But just as God loved Israel and called out to Israel, Israel continued to go his own way. The more God called them, the more they ran away, the more they kept on running to false gods, to the Baals, to other idols, to offering, bringing offerings to these idols. And you see what's happening here, don't you? It's not that God didn't love Israel. It's not that God didn't demonstrate his love toward Israel. It's not that God didn't pursue Israel. It's just sometimes when you have a wayward child, they only have eyes on your perceived faults. Um, They're blind to all that you provide for them, all that you do for them, all that you have done for them. They miss how much you truly love them. And so with deep heartache, some of you, you can understand here the pain of God. You, you, You understand that deeply. Because God knows the truth of that pain as well. He can sympathize with you. He's experienced all that pain, all that heartache with Israel. He's seen his child, who he's calling, who he's pursuing, who he's loving, continue to run away. The more he calls, the more they run. And the truth is, he's experienced all that with us as well, hasn't he? Because we can behave like Israel too. We can run our own ways in a million different directions. And of course, God has no faults at all. We love our children imperfectly, but we love them. God, he has no faults at all. But we still have these blinders on and we can think, oh, God, he should have done that for me. He could have done this for me. Why didn't he do that for me? And we can, ha- we can have these perceived faults with God and blame him for certain things and ask why wasn't he here in these circumstances and why didn't he do something in those circumstances we can be blind to all that he does do to the continued loving kindness that he continually demonstrates see God he kept calling in Israel he kept running and the thing is when you run from God You're always running somewhere. You're always running to something. You never just run and not run to something else. You're always headed somewhere. And here we see Israel running from God and running to 
the Baals, running to offerings of false gods to other false gods. See, we can be blind to God's loving kindness and we can run our own way too. So understand, Israel had seen God. They, they, they had seen his, his might and how he had rescued them out of Egypt. They, they had seen his provision and giving them food from heaven and water from a rock. They, they knew the relationship that God wanted with them because God had established, he had made this covenant with them. He'd given them his 10 commandments, his book of the covenant. And he had, they had seen how God's heart was to protect the most vulnerable and to cause them to rise up and to shine like stars to the other nations. This is what God wanted for them. They had seen it all. But you know, they aren't the only ones. You know people who grew up in the church and a Christian family. They, they grew up with parents who were intentional about making disciples and allowing their home to be a ministry center. They, they grew up surrounded with hymns and worship songs going to uh, hear all the different sermons and Sunday school classes and Wednesday night activities and just being involved in Christmas programs and Easter specials and all this different stuff. And then they reach a point where they start running the other way. Or they look back at all that with a, a cynicism, a smugness, and they look and they see how narrow all that was, how restricting all of that was, how boring all of that was. Oh, because now they've been enlightened. Oh, they've run after the things of the world and they've been enlightened and now they're free to chase whatever it is they want to chase, to think however it is they want to think. See, people haven't changed. Just like Israel, people haven't changed. Israel had that type of upbringing with God. You'd think they'd never run from God. They had seen his provision. They'd heard the commandments. They'd heard his law. They, they knew it. They, they, they'd been around it. But now they're running. Why? Because they've seen the other nations and the way they worship and the way they live. And they're thinking, oh, maybe that's the way things ought to be. Maybe that's what we ought to chase. And so God kept calling and Israel kept running. But understand, when people have been around God, when they've been brought up with God and, and they know the things of God, when they start running, oh, they run hard and they run fast because they think they know so much. And they're always running to something. Yeah, you never run to nothing. You're always running to something. And it can be a variety of things. You can run to sports or politics or success or money or people. You, you can run to interests or activities. You can run to a whole host of things. But you're always running to something. It can be almost anything, anything except for God, because God keeps calling and you keep running. See what Israel is doing? It's what people still continue to do. It's run. But we also see what God is doing. Do you, did you catch that in this passage? See, two comparisons are, are mentioned. He describes himself as a father who's looked after his children and a farmer who's cared for his animals. God, he begins by comparing himself to a, far, a, a, a father. And he describes the way a father loves a child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And you read this red hot affection that God has toward his son, Israel, this tender reminiscent father saying, 
It was I who taught you how to walk. We were invited into this imagery of a father who has this son who's gone astray and he's just wrecking his life, making all these poor choices. And the father in his heartbreak, he is recollecting the past and how he'd raised his son. He's saying, it was I. I I was there who was holding your hand as you took your first steps. I was the one who, who had my, my hand on your, your back, the back seat of your bike as you were learning how to pedal. He says, I was the one who was in the pool with you holding your back as you learned how to float. I was the one who, who picked you up when you fell down off your skateboard. I was the one who went and grabbed the Neosporin and the band-aids to clean you all up. I was, I was there through it all. You get this picture of this father, he I was there who gave you your first glove and taught you how to play catch. I was there. I was there. He continually was there. And so God, he's showing and he's just remembering this loving kindness that he's continually showed his son. But his son has missed it. Israel's missed it. That's the way of children, isn't it? It's kind of hard to understand how much your parents love you. Until maybe you have children of your own. And then once you have children of your own and, you know, your parents could have told you a million times when you were growing up, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's sometimes even in the most embarrassing of moments and you hear it and you know it. But then when you have kids of your own, something tends to happen and you say, oh, now I understand all those sacrifices. Now I understand all those provisions. Now I understand how you, how you looked after me even above yourself. Now I understand that love, how you were always there, never wanted to miss a moment, never wanted to be absent for anything. Now, we're imperfect parents. We don't love perfectly. We don't make every last thing. We do miss some things. None of us demonstrate our love to our kids perfectly. But God did. God, God did demonstrate his love to Israel perfectly, yet Israel still didn't see it, still didn't understand it, still didn't know it. Every parent understands this image. Because if you think rationally about it, we love our children irrationally. I mean, there's no explanation for the way that we love our kids. I mean, when they're babies and they're defenseless and they make messes, sure, we clean them up. They're, they're cute. We feed them. We change them. We take care of them. Yeah, that makes sense. But when they grow older, even the best of kids, they have their moments, right? When they talk back and they don't listen and they say things they shouldn't say and they're ungrateful. And what do we do? We continue to love them. Imperfectly, yes, but you love them. You continually pursue them. You call out after them. You still want them. You desire that relationship. It hardly makes sense. It hardly seems rational. And that, to the nth degree, is how God loves Israel how God loves you. It's irrational why he should keep loving us in this way, keep pursuing us, keep calling us back. I held your hand, I taught you to walk, I carried you in my arms, and you have no idea what I've done for you. God presents himself as this tender, loving father, and then he compares himself to a farmer. A farmer who leads his animals with cords of kindness. You know, he could have just yanked them. He could have just prodded and poked them to get them to the place where they ought to be, the way you would usually do with a beast of burden. But that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. He's leading them carefully and kindly, tenderly, with cords of kindness, with bands of love he led them. 
He says, I eased the yoke from your jaw. I made life more comfortable for you. I treated you better than you deserved. You get the picture here of a farmer bending down to feed his livestock. He's not just putting the the food in the feed trough for the animals to come and eat it just out of his hand. He's he's taken this extra step of loving care and kindness to feed his animals in this way. And so chapter 11 begins with this tender description of God just reminiscing with how he's treated Israel like a loving father, like a good farmer and how Israel has forgotten it all. And then he comes to the present. I mean, that's what happens beginning at verse 5. He speaks of the consequence, the judgment that Israel will experience, will endure. He says, Assyria will rule over you because you will not let me be your ruler. The sword will devour your town because you would not feast on my word. My anger is bent towards you because you are not bent towards me. And so Israel cries out to God for help. But it's a cry of help. It's not a cry of humility. And so we know the difference of that, don't we? we? We know the difference when someone just wants things to change rather than is truly humble and broken for what's taken place. And it takes no work of the spirit to cry out and say, deliver me, God, get me out of this jam. And God says, you cried out to me in help, but not in humility. It takes a, a work of the spirit to say, God, I am broken. I surrender my life to you, whatever the cost I'm willing to pay. Israel had kept running, kept turning away, running in a million different directions. And God says, I will not raise them up. If you go back and you read the earlier chapters of Hosea, you will see just the many ways that Israel had turned away. You see the stain of is on Israel because of his sin. It's been persistent. It's been widespread. I want to walk you through it here just in a minute. It says that they worshiped other gods, that they sacrificed on high places, that they made idols, that their men and women were committing adultery, even with shrine prophets prostitutes calling it worship. That's chapter four. In chapter five, they were proud. In chapter six, they transgressed the covenant. They uh, were murderers, thieves, drunkards, liars, and evildoers. In chapter seven, they had empty oaths. They made false promises. They performed these perfunctory offerings. They trusted in their sacrifices. They trusted in idols. They trusted in their deeds. They even trusted in their enemies but they did not trust in the Lord. Their priests were corrupt. Their kings and princes were corrupt. Their prophets were mad fools. Their hearts were false. They did not fear the Lord. They did not know the Lord. They had forgotten their maker. I mean, chapter four begins as he just even unleashes all this. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. The people of Israel, oh yeah, they turned away. They turned away and they had ran. They had ran in a million different directions, all of them displeasing to the Lord. There's religious sin, there's sexual sin, there's social justice sin, there's covenant sin, there's corporate sin, there's private sin, there's public sin, there's sin by the leaders, sin by the followers. Sin is pervasive throughout the land because Israel had turned away. And if you're paying attention in those previous chapters, then you'll also see how God 
describes his people because of their sin and the language that he uses to describe them. Oh, it's not pretty. He calls them alien children, hot ovens, a cake not turned, a silly dove, a faulty bow, a useless vessel, a wild donkey. I mean, we hear those terms and we almost giggle because in our context and where we live, like most of them, they don't even make any sense. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, it sounds like some kind of put down, but, you know, we, we don't even really resonate with it. Why? Because our world's changed a little bit. We're not, we're not like dependent upon donkeys and a hot oven like how's that a bad thing we, we don't really get it and so our challenge is to understand how the people would have heard it I mean how would they have felt it when God is speaking to them and one of the ways you can kind of do that is just imagine what he would say to our people today I mean if if God were talking to us today he would say things like you're a strikeout you're a gutter ball you're an interception you're a computer glitch you're a broken guitar string you're a condemned apartment building you're a clogged toilet you're a dog who refuses to be housebroken you're undercooked meat you're curdled milk you're a broken down car or you're a pencil without any lead and on and on and on and then we hear that and we begin to understand just how the people would have heard what God is saying about them and so God's judgment is severe. I mean, you go back and he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And he lists just the consequences of their sin that he's going to unleash upon them. He says there's going to be drought, that they're going to lose their standing, that they're going to be forced to eat unclean food, that they're going to be stripped of all their previous things, that their glory will fade, that Israel will become like a, a woman who miscarries, that pain will inhabit the land, that the land will be swallowed up by her enemies for destruction, that they will be rejected. God in his wrath, he's compared to a jealous husband, a frustrated shepherd, a destructive rot, a ferocious lion. His judgment was pictured as a whirlwind, a washing away of debris, the yoking of a stubborn cow. He's going to bring them down like a bird from the sky. I mean, you read all this and you get a sense that God hates sin. You see this over and over through the prophet Hosea. God hates sin. And Hosea... This prophet, it is an account of just incredible unfaithfulness, horrendous sin, and the judgment that that sin deserves. But at the same time, it's a love story. It's an incredible love story that tells us that we will never understand the God of the Bible until we can see how a God can become fiercely angry with his people because of their sin. And at the same time, passionately committed to them with this merciful, steadfast, inexhaustible, never giving up, never running out type of love. In verses 8 through 11 of chapter 11, this remarkable change takes place. Because God, he's been reminiscent about the past and he's described to them what's going on in their present, just the stain of their sin, the consequences because of it. And then at the end of this chapter, it changes and there's this note of hope because he says, here's what's going to happen in the future. Now, they don't deserve any of this. 
See, Israel deserved to be treated like the wayward son that he was. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, you see the way a wayward, rebellious son deserves to be treated in the law of God. I mean, you read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, and you have some of the most fearful reading in all of the Bible, because what is seen there is this rebellious child who hears the instruction of his father and his mother, and he just ignores it. He continues to go his own way. He runs from them, ignoring anything that they say. And so they call the leaders of the city to go and to talk to their son. And the leaders of the city come and they plead with him and they tell him, no, you got to repent. You got to do this. You got to change. And the rebellious wayward son, he continues to go his own way. He continues to bring this stain of evil on the family and on the community. And then the law of God says at that moment, it is the responsibility of the leaders to stone the son, to kill the son, that's the consequence, that's the judgment that his sin deserves, and that's what Israel deserved. To be stoned, to be forgotten, to be rejected, to be no more, that's what Israel deserved. But the thing about the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel is that restoration was always possible if the people would repent. If there would be this broken-hearted type of repentance, it had been embedded to them all the way back from Moses that even when you think I deserve to be destroyed, even when you think all hope is lost, when you think your sin is just too much, that God's not done with you. That if you will draw near to him, surely he will draw near to you. That God is not done with his people. So in this section, God says, I'm not going to execute my anger against Israel Again, I'm not going to hand them over to the Assyrians a second time. God is angry with his people, angry with their sin. Absolutely. He's going to execute his wrath upon them. He's going to allow all these consequences to take place, but it is not to ruin them. As it may seem at the time, it is not to ruin them. Ultimately, it is to restore them. See, do you understand that about God? That when you run in a million different directions and you do your own thing and then you reach a point and you think my sin is too great, what I've done is too much, how could I possibly come back after all of this? This passage is an incredible reminder to tell us that God is not done with you. That any consequences that you may be experiencing, they're not to ruin you. They're to restore you. They're there to help call you home. That's why this passage is so incredible. Because the full wrath of God would be justified upon us. We deserve all of it. And yet he says, no, no, I can't give up. I can't quit. It's this amazing picture of God because we know that our God is immutable. That is, he doesn't change. He's not like man who changes his mind, the Bible says. But this aspect of God, it, it reveals his love in just this vivid human terms. It's not some abstract uh, picture of it. We see it vividly in a way that we understand it. We, we understand this type of love. We get it. And so he pushes our metaphors and he almost creates some tension in our theology in the way that he describes himself here as he says again, like a father, oh, Ephraim. 
Another name for Israel, oh, Ephraim, my son. How can I give you up? How, how can I hand you over again? My compassion is warm and tender. I mean, how, how can I just send you back to the Assyrians? How can I come again against you in wrath? Israel, even with all he had done, still had not exhausted the mercy and the love of God. If he will just repent, God's not giving up on them. And God's not giving up on you. Maybe, maybe you're a ways away. God is not giving up on with you. He's not done with you. Maybe you've run away. Maybe you've explored all different kinds of things. You've gone to a million different directions. God is not done with you. Do you see the imagery in verse 10? God says that he will roar like a lion and his children will come home trembling. It's a roar that doesn't seem safe. It doesn't seem tame, but at the same time, it's good. And you juxtapose that roar in verse 10 to what we read in verse 1 when he says, I called to them in verse 1, and they ran away. And now in verse 10, I roared to them, and they came home. Our Father is calling, and we run. And we run and we run. And in the mystery of God's sovereign grace, God changes us so that we'll hear that same voice of God. And instead of keep on running, we turn and we come home. It's like a father calling out, son, daughter. And we hear that and it almost sounds like the voice of a judge. We say, oh, I got I to gotta get away. And that's our instinct. Well, they, they want to show me everything I've done wrong. And they just want to do all this to me and make me feel bad and, and guilty. And the instinct is to run as far away as humanly possible because just to look at them reminds me of my shame, of my guilt, of everything that I've done. And so we run. Don't want to listen. I just want to run. And here comes that same voice. Son, daughter. And it hits different ears. And instead of running away, the child realizes that's not the voice of my judge. That's the voice of my father. It's time to come home. It's time to be embraced again, to be welcomed into the family again. And if you were to go and you were to read chapter 14, it tells us that when God restores, he makes things better than they ever were before. God restores things in such a way to make them better than they ever were before. See, that's what happened with Hosea, wasn't it? That when he brought Gomer home, when he got her back, eventually the marriage was better than it ever was before. When we repent, when we listen to the voice of God, when we come home, God brings his people together because of his inexhaustible love, we're able to come together with love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible picture of love that demonstrates to us just how you love us. Like a father who's there to hold our hand, to carry us when we fall down, to heal us of whatever wounds we picked up along the way. But God, so often we hear your voice and we run. May we hear your voice and run to you to be the light that you've called us to be. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.